This is Forbes Under 30 on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Steve Goldblum. On this show, we talk to young innovators, disruptors, and entrepreneurs. Before we get going, I have two favors to ask of you. First, it would be great if you subscribe to Forbes Under 30 on iTunes. And while you're there, leave a rating and a review. Next, we'd really appreciate it if you took part in a survey that will take no more than five minutes. We promise you. I realize that survey taking can feel very unfun, but your efforts will have the effect of keeping our podcast free to download with minimal ads. So that's uh, a good thing. The survey is short and anonymous. There are two ways to access it. Go to podcastone.com forward slash my survey or go to podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. I thank you in advance for supporting Forbes Under 30 and taking the time out of your day to complete the quick survey. And now, on with the show. Today, I'm speaking with Jim Gilliam. He's the founder and CEO of nationbuilder.com, a software platform for leaders. He's also the author of the memoir, The Internet is My Religion. He is a survivor and a source of inspiration for many, and we want to get into all of that Jim, hello. Thank you. It's great to be here. I want to pick up on a couple things that I've read. You know, your book, The Internet is My Religion, and talks you've given. You describe yourself as a precocious Rush Limbaugh listening conservative, born again, who was homeschooled. Is that right? Yeah, that's how I grew up. Um, I grew up in the heart of the um, moral majority uh, movement uh, in Silicon Valley. Um, my family. Uh, moved out to uh, Virginia, Lynchburg, Virginia. So I was very steeped in evangelical culture and the kind of the mushing together of uh, religion and politics as that innovation really happened uh, in in American culture. Well, you really describe this um, in your writing and in your talking about the Internet. And, and when you paint that picture, you can see how the Internet might... Uh, be a source of, of inspiration, of fuel for you. Did you, can you describe for me the first time you saw the internet? Oh, wow. Well, the first experience that I had um, was online. Um, so it was a little bit before the internet was really accessible. And that was the moment that really stood out for me. I was like, you know, running around trying to figure out how to use this modem contraption thing that my dad had brought home uh, from his job at IBM. And I figured out how to call a local BBS. It was called Bull City BBS. It was in Durham, uh, North Carolina, which was my local calling area uh, at the time. And I logged in, and it was like really slow, just kind of the, the, the character, the ASCII characters kind of like coming across the screen. But then I, got, I found all of these free games that I could download. And I was like, I don't know, I was maybe 10 years old or something like that. Um, and so that was very, very intoxicating. So I spent uh, the next two weeks downloading all the free games. <laughs> now, were your parents aware that you were on the Internet or were you waking up in the middle of the night doing this uh, in their sleep? At first, they didn't really like have any idea what this thing was. And so I was like, oh, great. He's like playing with the computer. That's really good. But then as I became more and more obsessed over time, they started to see how it was uh how i was using it to kind of get outside of the perfectly curated christian bubble um that they were using to try to protect me and there was this whole other world out there which of course i was incredibly excited to explore and i was spending more and more and more of that my, my time there and they got they started to get really um 
afraid about what those influences were. It's interesting that that, that trend maintains today. I, I remember I was interviewing for another job. I was interviewing a uh, 14-year-old for a story that I was doing, and he I said, the things that you do that your parents don't know. And he, he said, yeah, I have 15 different email accounts and I play Minecraft, you know, with, with people from all over the world. They have no idea. That, that must have existed when you were young, right? Yeah. The, um, there's a song where the parents just don't understand. Um, <laughs> and there's something really fundamental uh, about that, which is actually kind of important, is that as the world moves faster and faster and faster, and the Internet is obviously a great example of that, but just technology in general – Parents don't grow up with that. Um, and so the way in which the world changes is just not something that they're as familiar with. And so each new generation is increasingly having to, like, figure these things out for themselves. As digital natives, people who don't know a world without technology and you know a world without it, you saw a world where it sort of began. And you actually played a big part in that, too. Um, do you think it's scary now when you when you see kids growing up and they don't know any other world, um, do you think they're missing out on something? Or is the internet their religion as well and, and uh, an escape or a source of inspiration as it was to you? Well, I am incredibly excited about um, um, kids having that experience and having those sort of those new opportunities. I think in general for the world, it's very scary. Um, folks are really, they, it, it, there's so much turmoil happening right now that is the result of the internet and the rapid pace of um, technology and the connectedness of everybody. And no one's really talking about it from in, in a leadership perspective, like, you know, in politics, like our leaders don't really talk about what this transition is going to look like. It's because it's going to be really hard and painful. And so I think without that kind of leadership, folks are really like, they're not clear what it is that they're supposed to do. They're not clear how to interact with their kids. Like, are they supposed to, you know, supposed to try to block certain things? Like, how do you deal with, bullies that are on the internet now and are global and like there's just so many confusing things what does it mean for my job and my career and i'm not going to be able to be at this company for forever and so without um folks helping people sort of understand and sort of create a narrative that helps explain what's happening um there is a lot of fear um and so that was part of the reason why i wanted to write that the book the internet is my religion is i i felt that there was a way to sort of articulate my own story as a means of like starting to understand what that narrative is like and how your life can change and what the opportunities are far for you, you know, as we all become more and more connected. Do you grapple with the difference between the digital footprint and then the idea of boots on the ground? Because you've done both. Like when you met Robert Greenwald and you're, you're talking about seeing lines out the door for an indie film, that's boots on the ground. I mean, it takes something to sit in a theater and watch a documentary versus you like somebody who went to that documentary screening. Yeah, I, I, I think that they are completely intertwined and how they're intertwined is like really fascinating. Um, so the Internet is really great at like making initial connections with folks, you know, that that first time that you follow someone on Twitter and you're saying, hey, like, I'm interested in you. I want to listen to what you have to say is an amazing way to kind of connect people based around interests and stuff like that. And then there's like folks who are already in part of a community. They know each other. Facebook is pretty good at like kind of helping people stay in touch with each other and kind of like not lose that connection. But there's this part in the middle, which is how communities actually come together and care about each other and are able to listen to each other and form real bonds. I've not 
seen that with some exceptions like happen on the internet that almost always happens uh, in person and in a professional context that's frequently at conferences. Um, you know, we, we kind of come up with these excuses for why we need to go to a conference. Uh, we need to get training on this thing or it's a good professional development thing and I can get budget for my employer in order to do that. But the real reason people are going is because all the other stuff that happens, the accidental community building that we have a fancy term called networking for, you know? Um, I think those are, the, those are the things that really connect people together. And so the combination of all of them was one of the really, one is, was one of the really big concepts behind Nation Builder and the software and how we help you do that, connecting the online and the offline together. And, and it ties back to the, that, that experience, you know, with the documentary, right, where there was tons of stuff that was online, but it was all feeding, you know, people showing up in a line at a theater. That wouldn't have happened without the internet. Listening to you talk about suffering and being sick is one of the most inspiring things that people can see on the internet. And I, I really encourage people to look that video up of the internet is my religion. How old were you when you were first diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? Um, I was 18. You were 18 and your mother was, was diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. Um, but it was two weeks later when I was in the hospital in the initial treatments um, that she went down to the clinic and spent several hours uh, doing her medical history. And, um, and yeah, she passed uh, five months later. Did that experience, um, I mean, did you start to question your faith? Had you questioned it before then? Um, that was the beginning. Um, I definitely had like sort of pings of doubt, you know, you know trying to defend a creationism uh, on the internet in those early days was like, you know, <laughs> that, that gave me a little glimpse into that. Right. Maybe that's not totally true. Um, but we didn't have Google, right? And so we didn't have search engines back then where somebody like me could kind of you know, figure that stuff out. I was in a pretty big bubble, but there were like pieces of it. And, and emotionally losing my mom definitely started, started me on the path of thinking differently about what my faith was. And then you, you, you know, picked yourself up and you went to Liberty University. Yeah, but I didn't last very long. And it was shortly after I moved up to uh, Boston to uh, do a, do an internet startup. That was kind of my, my ticket out I was like, I'm not going to like finish school. I'm going to just go and do this internet thing. It's a huge opportunity. Then within six months, I was diagnosed again, this time with, with leukemia. After this is when you meet Robert Greenwald, because we're getting towards 9-11. Yeah, I am. Um, I did. Um, I worked at Lycos, which was one of the first internet search engines. I did a lot of the dot-com era stuff, and I just loved every moment of it. This idea that I didn't have to finish college and I could like do what I loved. Um, but, um, but then 9-11 happened, and... It made me start to like, you know, I basically gotten pretty apathetic during that time period. Um, I was not I was not a Rush Limbaugh listening, uh, precocious yeah. uh, child anymore. Um, but I hadn't but I was, you know, nothing. I just wasn't as it didn't matter to me. And then 9-11 really woke me up and I was like, wow, what's going on? Um, and, you know, because of the Internet, I started to really dive in and understand that what, what was actually going on wasn't what um, our leaders were telling us. And that really, uh, that, that really bothered me. And I felt like this was an extremely important moment and that we would look back on it, you know, years from now and question like, okay, well, what did you do? You were there. Like, what did you do um, when all of that was going on? And I just couldn't live with myself if I didn't try to do something. And that led me on the path to, because of, probably because I lived in Los Angeles, um, to connect with a filmmaker it was Robert Greenwald. Um, and we started making um, a pretty uh, aggressive political documentaries, starting to expose 
uh, what was actually going on in the country. Well, I mean, those, and those fil- people should know that it's Brave New Films was the engine that you founded with, with Greenwald and movies like Outfoxed and several films on Iraq and Afghanistan came out of that. What, what was your role? What skill set did you bring as a producer? Because it started as a researcher, right? Yeah, it's funny um, because I started with Robert. It was just a couple of us. And I was like, I don't want to do anything with computers. <laughs> I was like, I'm done. I'm tired of it. Um, so uh, we will totally do this. Like, you don't have to pay me hardly anything, but I'm not going to fix anybody's computer. Um, and then, but sure enough, like, I couldn't stop it. Um, we, we found all kinds of ways to pull video off the Internet and um, were able to, like, make the movie faster than everybody had ever done before and and then ultimately, of course, we started we started crowdfunding before that was even a term. And all of this sort of the Internet DNA that I had, uh, I couldn't sort of hold it back. And that, and that that really became my role was, you know, how can we sort of leverage um, political organizing in the context of the Internet to create a whole new distribution mechanism for uh, stories that the traditional media just wasn't covering. And I think you can see a lot of that work today in Nation Builder, and I want to get to that. But I, I also want to talk about you got sick again, right? And you needed a, a double lung transplant. This was after. This is after you've done your films. Yeah. So as our um, the Walmart film was coming out, which was our uh, our third film, we'd worked on it for about a year, and it was coming out. Um, I found out um, yes that I needed a double lung transplant, and um, it, uh, that was, that was a new campaign, uh, for me to fight. Luckily I, um, had learned a lot about campaigning, and you, um, and working with Robert. Is it true that you kind of baited a surgeon into working on you? <laughs> Somewhat inadvertently, uh, <laughs> uh, I suppose. What, but, was the, um, what was the, what was the deal? So, um, I submitted my file to UCLA because they had the best survival rates on the west coast and obviously they were like they were in los angeles and so i really wanted to get into ucla and they took one look at my file and they just rejected it and so i was very upset about this of course so what i did was i went on my blog and uh threatened to register ucla surgeons are pussies.com and uh and then folks um just you know started posting in the comments and one person who had, was one of the volunteers uh, on the outfoxed film, she just fired off an email to the generic UCLA email address accusing them of only doing easy surgeries. She's like, no wonder your stats are so great. Like you only right. do the easy surgeries. And so then um, a couple weeks later, I got a phone call from the scheduler and I was completely, I was like, you don't understand. You guys already rejected me. This must be some mistake. And she's like, no, 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 no. Like you need an appointment. And of course I wasn't going to argue any further. And what I learned shortly after when I was able to meet with a surgeon was that, you know, yeah, they, they kind of dismissed my file um, right away, but he'd never seen it. He's like, look, they're right. It's going to be a really, really hard surgery. Uh, but that's exactly why I need to be the one who does it. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. So glad he did and so glad that, that there was a donor because you've said that we're in debt 
to each other and that you owe your life to countless people that you don't know and will never meet. Yeah, I was, um, you know, growing up, you know, as a um, pretty hardcore conservative, I had this deeply baked in sort of American ideal of individualism. Like I can do everything myself. I don't need anybody else. Really independent. And, you know, bit by bit over my life, I keep getting hit over the head really to make it really, really obvious to me that I can't actually do this alone. I literally have three different DNAs in my body now from folks that I don't know um, who sacrificed so that I could live. And that's what it took for me to really understand how connected all of us are um, and how much we need each other. We're, we're all in debt um, to each other just to live. And, and then what that means for us in our lives is like finding that thing that only we can contribute, that thing that's like really special to us. We all have it. And just really trying to find it and then figuring out the best way to offer it um, and contribute it to the world. Like that's, I know I get, I get fired up, um, you know, talking to people um, and trying to share my story as kind of inspiration to help them find, find what that thing is. Well, it is. And you said that your faith was restored in the power of people connected through the Internet. And you've also said God is just what happens when humanity is connected. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I really had to reconcile with... You know, did I believe in God? You know, um, to me, you know, as I when I grew up, I grew up as a fundamentalist, and so it meant that like the Bible was the inerrant word of God, right? Like whatever was in the Bible was exactly what God said, and it is complete truth. Um, and of course, a lot of people are Christians and don't, you know, they be- don't believe that, but that was where I was coming from. And so reconciling with, you know, is there a God or is there not? Um, I definitely went through a period where I was an atheist, and I, I. I it was much more comforting to me the idea that there was no God at all than the fact that there was a God that would allow such like horrible things to happen in the world and to my mom. With the lung transplant experience and sort of all the people that came together, the, the person um, whose family um, made it possible for like, me to actually get the lungs, um, all of that, I, just, I started to see like, the power of a connected humanity. It's like that is what God is, and it's not a being or an entity or anything like that. It's, it's something that just happens sometimes when people come together to take care of each other. Um, and the internet has enabled that in a way that's un, it was unimaginable at a scale that we could never, you know, never have expected. Um, but fundamentally it's just the connectedness of everybody and whether it's the internet or a hundred years from now, it's some like super fancy, you know, telepathic form of all of that. There is, there is nothing that is going to get in the way of us being connected with each other. And when we harness that for, for the greater good, it's, um, that's what God looks like to me. Looking at your life, you've had to grapple with your own mortality in ways that people shouldn't. But of course, people do. And I'm curious if your proximity to death, uh, did it help you accept it? Did you ever accept it? I don't want it? to die. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I really don't want to die. I am so present to it, and I fought so hard to stay alive because I believe there is something that I'm meant here to do. And everybody's here. There's something that they're meant to do, and so I want to live. And the will to live and your struggle getting there, has that informed the way that you do your work now at Nation Builder, the way you work with other people? Yeah, there's um, so much about, you know, we, we sell software to leaders, right? And the reason for that is because when you're trying to make something happen in the world to fulfill that thing that you're meant to create, you can't do it by yourself, right? 
um, you need other people. And the way that you can bring people together and community and using the internet and all of the like fancy new technologies and just even just talking to people, what that comes down to is leadership. And leadership is the hardest thing that I've ever tried to do. I imagine other folks are probably really good at it, but it's really, really hard for me. I am a geek who loves <laughs> to like, I love to like sit in my corner with the lights off and program. Um, so it has been um, a big journey for me to kind of tap into sort of what that, what I'm, what I care so much about that I'm willing to put all those sacrifices in to be a leader. And, um, and so helping people through that process and helping them be better leaders um, that's what it's all about for us. Tell us exactly what Nation Builder is. Nation Builder is software for leaders. It uh, solves the problem that leaders have where like the technology that you can use and the internet, um, it's so immense. You can raise money online, you can send emails, you can engage the public in all kinds of different ways. But there's like 13 different pieces of software you would need to do all of that. And it's really, really complicated and confusing. So we've, what we've done is we pulled it all together into one system oriented around the needs of leaders and then sort of really gotten the price point low so that it's accessible to everybody. It starts at $29 a month and then scales up as you grow. Um, and so the result is that a lot is that leadership is available to a lot more people across all different sectors, politics, nonprofits, uh, small businesses, large businesses, uh, universities, you name it. And what was the idea that inspired Nation Builder? I just experienced the power of organizing so much in my life and to the point where it even helped save my life, that I just, I felt like there was so much opportunity for anyone to have the power of organizing and leadership to make whatever it is that they want to have happen in the world happen. And how many people work at Nation Builder? And is, is the company profitable? Um, it's about 100 folks. And I uh, guess we are actually barely profitable. <laughs> Can you just give us an example of a specific leadership challenge that you've come up against and... Uh, maybe you've had to rethink and, and overcome? One of the big challenges is understanding how to handle conflict and the role of a leader in helping people become better. You know, David Foster Wallace has a quote, and I'm going to totally butcher it, but it's basically, you know, real leaders are ones that can help us overcome the fear and the insecurities and the things that get in the way of us being doing things that were greater than we could have done by ourselves. That doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is going to like you. Doing what folks want um, as a leader um, frequently leads to like ineffective results. And ineffective results like kill morale. And so really embracing you know, the fact that like, okay, we don't want to do this right now, but I've got to somehow create you know, a vision for how it is that we're going to get there. And no matter how hard it is or no matter how much right, you think that it may not be the right thing for us to do, I believe it's the right thing to do and then we're going to do it and then we're going to be like feel really great about it and I'm not going to get any credit at all for like having done that. Everyone's going to be kind of a little bit annoyed, but like we will have been successful. And that's been the hardest thing for, for me to learn, particularly because of all the political work that we do and all the expectations that folks have around leadership is that leadership's frequently about doing the unpopular thing, having the courage of those convictions and then helping people see the way through that. Jim, when you look back, what is an unpopular leadership decision that you've had to make that you don't regret? There was a time when we were really scaling up a couple of years ago, and I made a bad call. I started, we hired a bunch of people in a particular area, and, and um, it wasn't working. And, um, and so we got the, you know, the staff together, and we had our big kind of uh, semi-annual 
summit. And so everybody was, was, was together and we got into one big circle and we started a community building process where anybody could say whatever it is that they wanted under a few guidelines. You had to, you had to speak in I statements. You had to speak yourself. Hmm. Um, and you couldn't speak for other people. Um, and you had to speak when you were moved to speak in a variety of, of, of things like that. And the process involves going through an awful lot of chaos because people start saying things that they hadn't said before. And we did that. And I would say that the result of that was not chaos. It was utter and complete mayhem. Um, <laughs> people questioned why we were doing it. They said, you would not even believe all the crazy stuff people said to me in that environment. And I knew that we had to do this to um, come together as a community. And then over the course of the next year, I got lots of pushback. But over time, bit by bit, as we kept doing this process, this community circle process with these guidelines, the company came together in a way that was unbelievable. So that beginning of that year, when we did that initial community circle, we were burning $1.2 million a month. By the end of the year, we were cash flow positive. And the results of that were like unbelievable, but it all came down to like that community building process. It was so painful emotionally for everybody, but we are so tight knit and we are so able to do hard things that no other company or organization has like ever been able to do before. And now people really do value and appreciate what that experience was. But I got to tell you, there was not a single person at Nation Builder that thought I was doing the right thing. There's a cathartic experience uh, having done it. Absolutely. There's so much that we learned about ourselves and about each other and our ability to accomplish things. Look, every startup, you know, particularly one as like ambitious as we are, we're, we are explicitly out there to make more leaders and change the world, right? Um, it's not just a slogan. And um, coming together and being able to do hard things is what it all comes down to. And that doesn't mean that it's always fun. It doesn't mean that it's always, you know, uh, nice food in the kitchen and like free dinners and yoga and stuff. But I'm just so proud of what we've been able to accomplish. Where do you want Nation Builder to go? What are your what are your plans for it now? So we've done a lot with technology and we'll continue to do a lot with technology. But what I'm really excited about is that, you know, the offline piece and how do we how do we take advantage of the fact that we have leaders across across the political spectrum, across industries and nonprofits and government and all kinds of places, folks that are all disagreeing with each other. What are the opportunities for us to bring those folks together and start having dialogue um, with each other in ways that were sort of, that they would never have imagined before? We've done a lot of work internally with community building and sort of creating sort of different systems for how we come together and guidelines for what we do that are able to sort of break through a lot of the traditional problems that uh, folks have in sort of highly contentious issues like uh, diversity, both race and gender and, and things like that. How do we have like actually productive conversations and growth in that area? Um, so I feel like that's a big problem that leaders have. And we're, I'm really excited to dive into that, particularly at this moment um, uh, in time. Jim, I'm, I'm glad to know you. So thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Forbes Under 30. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to reach out to us with a comment or question, please do so at under 30. That's the number 30 at podcastone.com.
Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.